I'd like to direct your attention to this morning. We're found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if plaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Please pray with me. Lord, as we just sang, we ask that your word would work in power. Lord, that's where our confidence is for our sanctification. It's in you and it's in your word. And we ask that you would use your word to continue to conform us to your likeness. And Lord, if we use, ask that you'd use your word to give new life. Lord, if there's anyone among us who is yet to truly trust you and to fully repent from their sins, that you would use your word to give them life, that they might see, that they might experience the freedom from sin that you've promised for all those who would turn from it and trust in you. And Lord, for us who have repented and been born again, we ask that you would continue to refine us. Help us to see specifically where we need to change. Continue to deepen our theological convictions. Lord, that we would think less and less like this world and more and more in conformity to you and your truth. And so we ask that you would work in power and give us grace to understand and apply your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was recently uh, uh, serving as a juror uh, on a case and um, the prosecution that I was listening to presented many different kinds of evidence and many different witnesses uh, to make their case against the defendant. And they went out of their way to uh, emphasize um, identification. Could the witnesses identify the various parties accurately? Uh, the the, the uh, evidence that was at the scene of the crime, could, could, did it line up with um, other pieces of evidence that had been identified in the possession of the defendant? The, when making a, a case... Uh, it's very important for the defense and the prosecution to correctly identify pieces of evidence because that's how you know uh, or you're going to come to the conclusion, is this person innocent or guilty? Now, we're in the midst of a study of Colossians chapter 3 where Paul is explaining to Christians that when they were saved, they actually received a whole new identity. That now their identity is bound up in the person and work of Christ and no longer bound up in what they, who they once were. As Paul, as Paul says in Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died 
and your life, that is your identity, who you are, your life is hidden with Christ and God. That is where your identity lies. And the implication of receiving this new identity is that people, the Christians, would then walk according to this new identity. Just as the Apostle John wrote, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Christians are identified by the way they live. They're identified by the choices that they make. This is why in verse 5, he tells them to put off sinful vices. That's no longer who you are. And he tells them to put on Christian verses, virtues in verse 12. And last week we examined five virtues that Christians have that will identify them as genuine believers, namely compassion, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. And this morning we're going to look at three more virtues, that of bearing with others, forgiving others, and loving others. So let's look at first, that first one listed in verse 13, bearing with one another. Now, the Greek word aneko that's used here means to endure, to, to bear with, to, to put up with someone. Uh, Jesus used it this way in Luke 9:41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? So Jesus felt the need to also bear with these difficult people who would not listen. And in fact, didn't seem to want to hear the truth at all. So the, the word has to do with putting up with another person's weaknesses or annoyances to tolerate another person. And there are various ways people that get, get on our nerves. Either whining, impertinence, rudeness, arrogance, rudeness, immaturity. Right? On account of our indwelling sin and spiritual immaturity, Christians are going to struggle to put up with these annoyances. And likewise, we're going to struggle to tolerate such weaknesses in others. And we either blow up, blow up at them in anger or we internalize that anger and it just it boils inside of us until... One more time, somebody annoys us and we lash out. And in many cases, people will just cut off their relationships with those people who annoy them. You get on my nerves, I'm just, I'm no longer going to be around you anymore. I'm no longer going to go to that church because the people there bug me. All while thinking that they're being virtuous because they're avoiding a temptation that's going to lead them into sin. So they think they're doing the right thing. But Paul clearly says here, that when a person is annoying another Christian, you're called to actually not flee from them, but to bear with them. Consider how Jesus exemplified this. Remember that right after Jesus tells his disciples the first time that he's going to Jerusalem because he's, he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. Remember how they responded right, right after that? Their next question that they ask him was, who among us is the greatest, Jesus? He just told them he's going to die. 
I mean, imagine if somebody just told you they had terminal cancer. And your follow-up question was, are you leaving me anything in your will? I mean, that, that just, that's hard to bear with such people. Even the hours before his crucifixion, he tells them in Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So can, I, I feel like my, my sorrow will kill me before I even get to the cross. And so he asked them to remain here and, and watch with me. He asked them to stay alert and to pray because of what he's about to endure on their behalf. And then twice he finds them sleeping while he's in agony in prayer. But rather than blowing up at them, he simply exhorts them when he sees them sleeping. So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And even when he comes back a second time, he simply wakes them up and says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hours come. The son of man is betrayed. He bore with his disciples, even in the the greatest time of his agony. Christians really need to have the perspective of Henry Venn. He was one of the prominent pastors of the 19th century. And one day he invited another fellow pastor, a famous pastor named Charles Simeon, to his home. And Charles Simeon, especially early years in his ministry, really struggled with having a harsh and self-assertive attitude. And this, this attitude shocked Venn's daughters. And so eventually after Simeon leaves Venn's home, they complain to their father about Simeon's attitude. And so Venn took his girls to the backyard and, and, he, and he asked them to, to pick me one of those peaches off the tree. And they look at him kind of strangely because the, the peaches were green and they weren't yet ripe. So they asked him, why would you want us to pick green and unripe fruit? And then reply to them, well, my dears, it's green now and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. Like he recognized that, you know, sometimes in our youth, in our spiritual maturity, that's why we struggle. And then understood that, yeah, I don't want to condone this man's attitude let's just bear with him. Simeon continued to struggle with these tendencies, though. Uh, Many years later in his life, when he was a more mature individual, he was invited to a friend's house again, a Mr. Hankinson. And he became so irritated with how Hankinson's servant was soaking the fire that he gave him actually a swat on the back to get him to stop. And then again, when he was leaving, he was frustrated with how the servant was putting on the bridle and getting it mixed up, and his temper broke out again, and he actually acted violently against the man. And rather than letting the matter go, Mr. Hankinson wrote Simeon a letter, as if it was from his servant, and he put it in Simeon's bag to be found later. In it, he said that he did not see how a man who preached and prayed so well could be in such a passion about nothing and wear no bridle on his tongue. And he signed it, John Softly. Well, after reading the letter, Simeon responded directly to the servant with the words, quote, to John softly from Charles, proud and irritable. Cordially thank you, my dear friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. 
End quote. And then he wrote to his friend, Mr. Hankinson, and said, I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul near to God, that you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. So I, I, I give that illustration because bearing with another person doesn't mean that you avoid confronting them or that you just sweep sin under the rug. Sometimes it means you confront them, but you also bear with them in their weakness and failure. I love how John Newton depicted this. He said, a company of travelers fall into a pit and one of them gets a passenger to be drawn out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man that he met. If you understand the miracle that has taken place, the mercy that God has shown upon you, then you will want to show the same sort of mercy to others. And so it's imperative for Christians to bear with one another, even as we struggle to live out our identity in Christ. And likewise, we must also then forgive one another, which is the second trait that Paul mentions. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, that word complaint doesn't just mean a whine. Somebody's whining about you and complaining about you. It actually refers to a genuine wrong that has been committed against you. It could be a an annoyance, uh, some way somebody's bothering you, like immaturity or rudeness or arrogance. They cut you off. And in worst cases, though, it can also refer to something like adultery or abuse or slander. It really, it, it can refer to any wrong or affliction. And so how should a Christian respond when afflicted by others, Paul says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And this is in line with the Lord's instruction to Peter that we read about earlier in Matthew 18. Right? Peter asked him point blank, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that's where then Jesus presents the parable of the unforgiving servant. So what does it mean then to forgive a person? Well, think of it as in terms of a loan, like a financial loan. When you have a loan forgiven, it means you no longer are in debt. If you forgive a loan that somebody has to you, they no longer owe you any money. And likewise, when we forgive a person who has sinned against us, what we're saying is, you don't owe me anything. Your account is clear before me, and, and there's nothing hindering us in our relationship. We can be reconciled because there's no longer any debt. Seeking forgiveness is, is to seek reconciliation within the relationship. 
And even if a person doesn't come to you and ask for forgiveness, doesn't express any desire to even want to be reconciled, it should still be the Christian's desire to want that reconciliation to come about. And we should pray for that reconciliation. Right? Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who's in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. You consider the implications. If you're unwilling to forgive another person, if you're unwilling to sever that, uh, that debt that they owe to you because of their wrongs against you, if you're holding on to that sin, whatever it is, that sin is interfering also with your prayers. It's interfering with your relationship with God. To choose to not want to give another person forgiveness is to choose to not receive God's forgiveness. Consider how Jesus did this. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who was Jesus praying for at that time? Was it for people who had come to Jesus as he was hanging on the cross saying, Jesus, forgive us for crucifying you? He was asking the Father to forgive the Romans, the Jews, really all there. Because they had no clue what they were doing. Peter says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died. He was on the cross so that we too might die to sin, including that sin of not being willing to forgive. The reason why Christians will always offer forgiveness is because they know the greater offense that they have committed towards God is so much infinitely greater than any offense anybody can do to us. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You know, it's remarkable that in the Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the Disciples' Prayer, Jesus actually only gives three petitions. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and lead us not to temptation. But he goes out of his way to qualify that second petition. To forgive us our sins. He says that when seeking forgiveness from God, we must also desire to forgive others, right? For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted against us, he said. The implication is when we seek forgiveness from the Father, when we confess our sins, we are recognizing that we need to forgive anybody else who has sinned against us. Now, our culture encourages not forgiving other people. In fact, we, we think of it almost as a virtue to not forgive, but to boil, to be angry, to demand our rights, to demand justice. Any divorce demonstrates really an unwillingness to forgive, at least on one party. 
And if you look at the stats, most marriages end in divorce in our, in our country. And the stats are equal with those who are professing Christians and those who are unbelievers. Half. Half of Christian marriages are going to end in divorce, which says at least half of those people in those marriages at least aren't believers because they're unwilling to forgive. A failure to forgive others is a witness of our failure to recognize how much we've been forgiven. Again, consider that parable that Jesus gave of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Even after being forgiven an astronomical amount of money, just simply for saying, forgive my debt, have mercy upon me. I mean, the man was forgiven the amount of a, a nation's revenue for a whole year. I mean, it was just an, ast- an unbelievable amount of money. That servant, even though being forgiven that, was unwilling to forgive a small debt that was owed to him by another slave. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, I want you to see that forgiving others is inextricably linked with your identification as a believer. I mean, notice even how Paul says that forgiving others as you have been forgiven. There is no such thing as a Christian who is unwilling to forgive any wrong. It's part of our new identity. Does this mean if I'm I'm not a believer, if I'm struggling to forgive, though? Well, again, remember that in Colossians 3, Paul is explaining what Christians look like. If a person has been united to Christ, they will look less and less like their old identity and more and more like Christ. And a genuine Christian will choose to repent from their sin. By forgiving. Many people, like the rich young ruler, think that they're faithful Christians. They, they think they followed all the commands. And then they're wronged. And they're unwilling to let go of that wrong. Like with the rich young ruler, he was unwilling to let go of his money. Christ, if you're you're willing to let that go, come and follow after me and you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. But he was unwilling to let that go. It exposed an idol. Well, likewise, if they're in a Christian's heart, if there's an unwillingness to forgive, that's showing there's still something more important in their heart than God. And if you think about it, that's self. Your honor, your glory is more important to you than God. God's honor and God's glory. And it's just taking that sin to expose that, yeah, there's still something. There's still an idol in that heart. And that idol is you. Like the seed that sprouted, but got choked out by weeds and thistles. At first they appear saved, but it's really just a, enthusiasm for something new, their heart is still entangled with self-worship. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Christians won't struggle to forgive. We're going to struggle to forgive just like we're going to struggle with every other sin. Right? Just because we're saved from sin, we're no longer slaves of sin, doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. No, we still struggle with sin. But at, whenever we sin, whenever that sin is exposed to us, a genuine believer will repent. If a person is unwilling to repent from any sin, it just shows that sin means more to them than God. Struggling to forgive, again, it's just another sin struggle. And it's a, really it's a struggle with self-worship. Right? We tell ourselves when we are struggling to let go of somebody's sin against us that we're just seeking justice. But in reality, we just care more about the wounds that we have received, those sinners, more than the wounds that we have given God, though he is sinless. And this is why John MacArthur says that a person is most like God when they forgive. In his book, God's Underground, Richard Vernbrand tells about a meeting he had with a man who had killed his wife, Sabina's family. He said, our landlord, a good Christian, told me sadly of a man who was staying in his house while on leave from the front. I knew him before the war, he said. But he's changed completely. He's become a brute who likes to boast of how he volunteered to exterminate Jews in Transmistria and killed hundreds with his own hands. So Vernbrand invited him to his home to listen to some Ukrainian music that that man was very fond of. And after a short time there, Vernbrand informed him. If you look through that curtain, you can see someone is asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you had killed hundreds of Jews near Golta, and that is where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know who you have shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of her family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me. And I held up my hand and I said, now let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife and tell her who you are and what you have done. And I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best thing she has in the house. Now, if Sabina, who's a sinner like us, can forgive you and love you like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive you and love you. Only turn to him and everything you have done will be forgiven. Barilla was not heartless. Within he was consumed by guilt and misery at what he had done. And he had shaken his brutal talk as if at us as a crab shakes its claws. One tap at his weak spot and his defenses crumbled. The music had already moved his heart and now came instead of the attack he expected Words of forgiveness. And his reaction was amazing. He jumped up and tore at his collar with both hands so that his shirt was rent apart. And he said, oh God, what shall I do? What shall I do? He put his head in his hands and sobbed noisily as he rocked himself back and forth. I'm a murderer. I'm soaked in blood. What shall I do? And tears ran down his cheeks. 
Barilla fell on his knees trembling and we began to pray aloud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness and said that he hoped and knew it would be granted. We were on our knees together for some time and then we stood up and embraced each other. And I said, I promise to make an experiment. I shall keep my word. I went into the other room and found my wife sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at that time. I woke her gently and said, there's a man here whom you must meet. We believe he has murdered your family. But he has repented and now he is our brother. She came out in her dressing gown and put her arms around him and embraced him. Then they both began to weep and to kiss each other again and again. I've never seen bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then, as I foretold, Sabina went to the kitchen to bring him food. Now, that's a remarkable story of forgiveness. But I also find that what is an additional remarkable element in it is that Vermbrand was so convinced of how his wife would respond. He knew his wife was a believer. And he knew how she would respond when this man who had so grievously sinned against him was brought to her. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 14, calling us to put on the the chief virtue, love. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, that phrase there makes love the actual, the, the emphasis in this list. It could be translated also as overall, as in, uh, as in a garment. Like you put a garment over everything else that you're wearing, like a great overcoat. What he's saying is love is both the chief virtue as well as the virtue that encompasses all the other virtues that he's listed. Right? It says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or Romans 13.8, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who's, who loves another has fulfilled the law. So he says, above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That that phrase, perfect harmony, uh, the Greek word there is teleos. It's typically translated maturity or perfection or completion. Paul used the word back in Colossians 1.28 when he said that the goal of ministry is that we would present every man complete in Christ or mature in Christ. It's the same word used here. In Colossians 3.14, it translates the phrase here as perfect harmony and the New American Standard as in perfect unity. What the text says in the Greek is is difficult to translate into English. Literally, it says, which is the completion of binding? That is, love is the end result. Love brings binding together to completion. Remember, we came across this word for binding, actually, in Colossians 2.19, where the ESV translates it being knit together. 
right? And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together or bound together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that's from God. So he's talking about growing in spiritual maturity there. And I think he's actually speaking of the same thing in Colossians 3.14. Paul's not directly talking about unity within the church. He's talking about maturity in the church. This is what will result when Christians choose to love one another. When Christians choose to love one another, they will be a mature Christian. The church will mature. They will grow up into like Christ likeness as a church. Colossians 1.28. Perfect love is the end result of the church. That's what we're aiming at. To truly love one another like Christ loved us. And it's also the virtue that should define the church. Right? The love is the virtue that, that brings all these other virtues together. In fact, he's saying, if you love, you will do all the other things that I've asked you to put on. So that begs, of course, the question, what is love then? What is biblical love? Well, I'll give you my definition. Love is doing what is best for another person, regardless of the cost to yourself. Doing what is best for another person without regard to your own interests. That's what we're called to do in every aspect of our life with every person that we meet. The most mature Christians are the most genuinely loving Christians. And think about that. It's not those who are most famous. It's not those who are most successful. It's not those who are the most poor. It's not things... Maturity isn't something... Mature Christianity isn't something that's defined necessarily externally. It's defined by love. Jesus said, John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. This is the defining element of Christian. Right? If you love another person, you're going to forgive them. You're going to bear with them. You're going to show mercy and compassion. You're going to humble yourselves. You're going to consider their interests above your interests. When you're in a room full of other people, you're not going to be thinking of how do people, what do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they respect me? Do they value me? You know, you're going to be thinking, how can I help this person grow in Christlikeness? How can I serve this person? What are their needs? That's how a mature Christian should think. And this is John's commentary on Jesus' words in John 13. He says this in 1 John 3. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives. That's what we're called to and, and these, these, these comments are not just pie in the sky. Just, he, it, it's not just hyperbolic statements. No, this is the expectation. Why? Because we're called to follow Christ. And he gave up everything and bore everything so that we might be reconciled to him and reign with him for all eternity. So biblical love is very different from the way the world loves. 
Right? When the world says, I love you, what they mean is, I find something in you valuable to me. It means I want to use you. I want you to make me look better. I want you to gratify my pleasures and my passions. I find you useful. When the world says, I love that, it's, I find that useful to me. Because the world is selfish. That is the opposite of biblical love. Biblical love says, I am so committed to your interests, I'm willing to give up whatever it takes to meet that interest. Because you mean more to me than I mean to myself. Because I've died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. So biblical love is Christ-like love and such love is not pretty. It's not attractive. It is not something people are going to want to emulate when it's seen in reality. I love how Father Zosima describes such biblical love in the Brothers Karamazov. He says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. Men will give their lives if only the ordeal is slow and does not last long, but is soon over with all looking on and applauding as if on stage. But active love, and by that he means biblical love, active love is labor and fortitude and for some people, complete science. Biblical love is painful. It's humiliating. It will break your heart. But it is glorious. Richard Vermbrand, who I quoted earlier, also wrote a book called Tortured for Christ about his time in prison as a pastor under communism in Romania. And he wrote about the power of love in his autobiography. He says, if the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. I don't know if you've ever thought about how can I endure torture? How can I endure oppression? If, 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 if Christians are persecuted again in this nation, how will I endure? Love. Learn to love. Spoken from a man who went through great torture. He says, God will not judge us according to how much we have endured, but how much we could love. The Christians who suffered for their faith in prisons could love. I am a witness they could love God and men. He goes on to give an example of another Romanian pastor who was sentenced to death. He says he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, quote, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They do not know what they do. And my last request of you is that you love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they've killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who was attending the discussion between the two. That officer later told me of the story while he was in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. Father, we ask that you would teach us to love. Teach us to love in such a way where people would understand your great love for them. 
Lord, we know we're not stupid. We know there's a cost to being such Christians. But Lord, in light of the cost that you paid for us, we ask that you would make us such Christians. Give us eyes to understand your great love for us so that we too might be freed to love others. Our persecutors, those people who annoy us, who are relentless in their accusations and their taunting and their attacks. Lord, for those even our family who we love and yet we struggle to love as you love. Lord, for those who have harmed us grievously in our past, cause us to love. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's struggling to forgive, who has yet to forgive another who has transgressed against them, I pray that you would so overwhelm their heart with an understanding of how much you love them that they would be set free from that sin. And truly receive the forgiveness that you've poured out on their behalf. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So how fitting to...